Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And he taught them in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And then he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them were cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. And all of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill uh, of the town that the town was built on in order to throw him off of the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, You know, one of the first things that I do when I begin to study a passage of Scripture uh, is to read it a couple of times and then uh, ask questions uh, about the things that I notice. Uh, Now, I do this because it helps provide direction for my study, but I also do this because chances are all of you may have the same or similar questions upon a reading. Uh, Now, I've read this passage before, but this time, uh, this week as I was studying, uh, it just felt especially puzzling. Uh, And here are a couple of questions that I asked of this text, and these are taken directly from my notes in Evernote. Uh, It's like a little commercial. Okay, so here's a question. Uh, Why did Jesus say something that would tick the crowd off? It was going so well. Right? This is exactly what I wrote after, after a reading. Uh, I mean, look at this, look at this story. Uh, Jesus stands up, he reads this famous passage about the Lord's anointed one that is to come, and the people are thrilled. And then he says that the passage of scripture has been fulfilled in their hearing, and it seems that they are filled with hope that the anointed one has finally come. Everything was going so well. But by the end, they are so mad that they're ready to throw him off of a cliff. Quite literally, it's like, I want to throw you off a cliff, like hashtag, it's not a metaphor, right? Uh, For real, they want to throw him off of a mountain. Uh, And so I I just asked the question, like, why would Jesus say something that makes them so mad? 
Uh, in fact, if you have a red letter Bible, that is where the words of Jesus are printed in red, uh, look at this passage, verse 22 uh, in black, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And then you have a whole bunch of red letters and then verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. I mean, you go from this, this guy's amazing to let's kill him, right? Uh, which leads to the second question that I wrote in my notes. What is it about what Jesus said that makes them so mad, right? Question number one, why would Jesus say something that makes them mad? Question number two, what is it that Jesus said that made them so mad? Uh, the stories that Jesus tells in the red letters seem to be pretty innocent enough, at least to me, uh, they don't, on the surface, seem controversial or edgy or offensive. Uh, I mean, sometimes, sometimes when you're reading Jesus' words, the only proper response is, oh, snap, um, which I think is what the kids are saying nowadays. Um, I think it's like back and like cool now, oh, snap. But, uh, but this isn't one of those times, right? Like the, the proper response to Jesus' words here is not like, whoa, it's not jarring. And so we have to ask the question, what in the world is going on here? And to be honest with you, um, when I was studying and I, and I began to discover what was going on here, I was utterly amazed. And I think that you might be too. And I was, I was utterly challenged to the core. In order to understand what's going on, we, we need to look closer at the scripture that Jesus read. Uh, we're told in the text that Jesus is reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And I don't want to be lost on the irony here. Uh, that the word of God, the capital W, living word of God, the logos, the logic, the incarnation of God is reading the word of God. Okay? In fact, oftentimes Jesus will quote scripture, but this is one of, if not the only time, that we have a record of Jesus, the word, reading the word. Uh, and, it, and what he's reading is he, when he goes to the scroll, and he finds this spot. You know, you have to recognize that when Jesus is reading from the scroll, he, he doesn't have chapter markings, verse markings, and all of that like we do. So, but it says right in the text that Jesus opens a scroll and finds this place in the prophet Isaiah. And, and it's in chapter, it's what we know as Isaiah 61. So it was a little ways down the scroll, right? Uh, so Jesus unrolls the scroll and he reads what we know as Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. But here's what I want to do. I want to compare what Jesus reads with what is written in Isaiah. Now, there's, there's some nuanced differences uh, in the first little section. That's due to the English translations from Hebrew and Greek, but I want to point out something really important. So, in fact, I've created a slide. Uh, Isaiah's version, this is from the NIV, says this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That's Isaiah's. That's what the scroll of Isaiah says. Then Jesus, when reading it, says this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
and then he rolls up the scroll. So I want you to capture this, that when reading from, reading from the scroll of Isaiah, Jesus omits the line about the day of vengeance of our God. He just starts, stops reading and rolls up the scroll. Uh, rolling up the scroll is like an ancient version of dropping the mic. So Jesus gets there and then he drops the mic. And I want us to see what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus does is he reinterprets the prophet Isaiah in light of himself. You with me? Remember, let's not get lost on the irony. The word of God is reading the word of God. And when reading, he reinterprets the prophet Isaiah in light of himself. That is to say that Jesus reinterprets the authority of Isaiah based on his own authority. And trust me, it was as shocking to those gathered in the synagogue today, that day as it is to us. I was utterly amazed when I discovered this. So let's do our best to put ourselves in the shoes of those who were there that day. Uh, this passage in Isaiah was and is one of the most famous passages about what is called messianic hope. That is hope for the anointed Messiah of God to come and to, to rescue and restore his people. Uh, so this is one of the most famous passages, uh, was and is for messianic hope. And, and certainly those who were gathered in the synagogue that day would have known it by heart. And so I just kind of imagine like this room full of people, uh, Jesus reading it, and this room full of people reciting it under their breath as he reads. Uh, but then they recognize as they're reciting that all of a sudden the person at the front isn't saying the whole thing. <laughs> that th he just stops before the actual passage is over. Uh, which is why it's no wonder the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Uh, it would be difficult to overstate how jarring this was for those who were gathered there that day. Uh, and just to give you some idea of what this must have been like, what if Gladys Knight were to, sing, were to stand up and sing the Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl this afternoon? And what if she sang... And the land of the free. And then sat down. <laughs> Would the people gathered in Atlanta cheer or be utterly silent and just staring at her? Right? Because it's like, you left out and home of the brave. Right? I mean, just give you a, like, imagine if, imagine if that were to happen. Singing the star spent the national anthem and leaving out and the home of the brave I mean this this gives you some idea some idea of How the folks in the synagogue felt that day? Now regardless despite their surprise they're willing to go along with what Jesus is saying I mean after all uh, he says the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing so hope of the messianic age is finally here uh, that is perhaps the true the world's true messiah has finally come uh, so how did we get to the point where it's like yeah okay despite our surprise we can accept what's happening we're excited about the messiah who has come how did we get from there to I want to throw this guy off of a cliff well, again, we have to understand what Jesus points us to. He tells two proverbs and two stories 
and, and, and what that does, these two proverbs and these two stories expose the hearts of these Nazarenes. That's a little play on words here. This is a, a church of the Nazarene, so by virtue of being here, you all at least to some degree are associated and could be called Nazarenes. So can those who live in Nazareth, so you understand what I'm doing when I say that when Jesus tells these two proverbs and these two stories, he exposes the hearts of these Nazarenes, and with their hearts exposed, they are angry to the point of wanting to kill Jesus. And so, how did we get there? Well, in response to, jo- to, the, to the question, isn't this Joseph's son? Uh, Jesus says a very famous proverb, uh, which is very short and simple. Uh, Jesus says, I know that you'll just probably say, physician, heal yourself. Now this proverb, again, the thing about scripture is we have to enter into uh, the world that it was spoken, right? Words, language change, metaphors change over time. And so we have to enter into what were the metaphors and the proverbs and the different sayings uh, that, that were common at that time in order to understand. In other words, if one of our ancient brothers and sisters uh, were somehow able to read some of our texts today and they came across that, that we Googled something, right? They would, they would have no idea what that meant. They would have to enter into our world to know that there's this thing called Google, that we wear computers in our pockets and on our wrists that can give us access to information uh, that is called Google, right? Uh, So in the same way, we have to enter into this world and understand what is this proverb that Jesus is talking about, physician heal yourself. Well, this proverb was commonly understood to be a call for the healer to take care of his or her own. See what I'm saying? So it wasn't seen as, a, as the physician having a deficiency uh, of their own, but rather it was a way of saying that the physician is, is charged to care for and heal the people that were in their fold. In other words, uh, the people there were wanting Jesus to do some of the same kinds of miracles that they had, he had reportedly done in Capernaum. But this time, he's in his hometown, and so he's one of us, and so will give us the same benefit of all those miracles you'd been doing out there. Are you with me? Does this make sense? The expectation of the crowd is that Jesus, as a Nazarene, being from Nazareth, would take care of his own and perform all of these miracles of healing in their midst. So, and certainly with Jesus' proclamation about the Isaiah passage being fulfilled in their hearing, they could expect some really good things coming their way. So far, so good, right? Then Jesus says a second proverb. Truly I tell you, he says, no prophet is accepted in their hometown. Here's a pro tip when reading the scriptures. Pro tip, when Jesus says, truly I tell you, this is a clue uh, to begin to really pay attention, right? Truly I tell you, that should tip you off to be really paying attention. He says, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And this is essentially Jesus' way of saying that just like the prophets of old, who were often rejected by the political and religious establishment, Jesus is warning them, I don't know that you're going to like what I have to say. 
You see, the Old Testament prophets were well known for speaking truth to power, not just, wanting to, not just saying what the establishment wanted them to say. And Jesus, by saying no prophet is welcome in his hometown, is basically saying, I'm gonna fall right in line with this tradition, and he, then he pokes the bear by telling two stories. Okay, the two stories are this. The first story is about Elijah, who at one point in his prophetic ministry provides an unending supply of food for a Gentile widow and her son in the midst of a famine, but provides no such provision for any Israelite. That is, Israel's prophet, Elijah, is providing food for a Gentile widow and her son in the midst of a famine, but doesn't do that for any Israelite. That is the opposite of physician heal yourself. Catch on? Okay, then the second story is about Elisha. We have Elijah and Elisha. Elisha, who healed uh, a Syrian army officer named Naaman of leprosy uh, when he offered no such services to anyone in his own crowd. In fact, I want you to imagine how the story of an Israelite prophet who healed an army officer from Syria must have felt to a group of Jewish people who were under the occupation of Rome. It was essentially a story about how there was ministry to those they would call an enemy. So, the people there that day rejoiced at the idea that the Messianic age had come, but became angry when Jesus made it clear that that Messianic age wouldn't be what they had expected. You with me? Listen to what one commentator says on this passage, and I've got the quote up here on the screen. It says this, what makes all of this preaching so unacceptable is that the people of Jesus' time expected Messiah to come and destroy Israel's enemies, not minister to them. That sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? Jesus was speaking about the intolerable truth of ministry to enemies. And this was and this is Jesus' M.O., right? his modus operandi. This was, this was what Jesus was about. Grace did a great job of reminding us last week that in Luke chapter two, Simeon sees the Christ child and declares him to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for the people of Israel. In other words, Simeon knew right away that even Jesus as a child would expand the fold of who is considered, quote, in, right? And then Jesus will go on to teach his followers to churn the other cheek, to forgive those who persecute them, even to love their enemies. And he'll tell stories about groups that have previously been separated by hate who are now ministering to one another, like the story about the Samaritan who helps the Israelite that has been robbed and beaten. But sometimes he doesn't just tell stories, but he goes on and he embodies these truths, like the time that he ministered to a Samaritan woman at the well, or he shared a meal with tax collectors, or offered forgiveness to prostitutes. You see, the very tone of Jesus' ministry is set when he reads from Isaiah in the temple and he leaves out the bit about God's vengeance for enemies. He absolutely sets the tone. Here's the common understanding of the passage in Isaiah. That if we turned this into the synagogue in Nazareth on that day, 
And we all were reciting that passage in Isaiah under our breath as Jesus read it. This is the assumption, the lens by which we would have heard and read that same passage. And it would have been this. That God's favor was reserved for us and God's vengeance was reserved for our enemies. I mean, that's, that's simply how the Isaiah passage was, that there's, two, there's this twofold. The, the, the year of the Lord's favor, oh, that's for the people of Israel, and then the day of vengeance of our God, that's for the people outside of Israel, those that we call enemies. And so when Jesus announced that the passage was fulfilled in their hearing, he fulfilled the first part, right? Uh, that, that there's blessing to come for those who are called the people of God, but in fact, he flatly contradicted the second part with what he, the stories that he told. In fact, he left that second part out completely. And this infuriated the crowd to the point of wanting to make Jesus an enemy himself. And once Jesus was an enemy, they felt justified in seeking his death. It turns out you can't leave out God's vengeance and get away with it. Author and theologian Fred Craddock, and I have another quote up for, for the screen for us, it says this in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke. Anger and violence are the last defense of those who are made to face the truth of their own tradition which they have long defended and embraced. Anger and violence are the last offense of those who are made to face their own, the truth of their own tradition in which they have long defended and embraced. And here's where the rubber really meets the road, and here's where I felt myself personally challenged by the Spirit of God this week is that in understanding the passage in its historical context, it helps us to realize what is really going on. It helps us to answer the questions that we initially asked of the text, like what is it about what Jesus said that got these people so angry, right? I think we know that now, or at least we have a better idea. But it immediately brought up all sorts of, of, of challenges of, for my own views of, of what I would want or expect from God. And so I have a question. The question is this, how do we respond when Jesus says something that upsets our own expectations or challenges our own worldview? How do we respond when we read something in the scripture and Jesus says something or does something that begins to challenge our own perception, our own expectations, our own worldview? If you're like me, you tend to dodge the difficulty in the text by reading yourself favorably into the text. Here's what I mean. Uh, we tend to put, or I tend to put, myself in a position of, of whoever is put in the best light in the scripture. <laughs> the, the people who respond well to Jesus, yep, that's me. <laughs> the people who understand and get the message, yeah, me, me, me. You know, the people who are set free from oppression. Yeah, 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 me, me. So I tend to, when I'm reading scripture, if, if I find something difficulty, difficult or, or challenging in the text, I usually just try to dodge it by reading myself favorably into it. 
But I'm afraid that sometimes when I do that, and sometimes when we do that, we might really miss the best that God has for us. And the best ways in which the Spirit of God seeks to form us and shape us more into his likeness. I want to pose what I, I consider to be a, a personally difficult question of this text, and that is this. What if, as we read this story, we place ourselves not as the beneficiary of freedom and the ministry of the Messiah, but as those who are chasing Jesus to the cliff in protest of his message? And I know that probably feels unnatural because we would say, but of course we are the beneficiaries of the ministry of the Messiah, to which I would say, yes, that is absolutely true. But is there more going on in this text? And is there more that God would want to say to us if we would dare to ask the more difficult question of what if I begin to see myself as one who is ready to run Jesus out of the synagogue? Based on the stories and the Proverbs that he told. You see, the response, our response, to Jesus' message of love exposes our hearts. And, and I, I think I want to put a little finer point on it, that, that our response to Jesus' message of enemy love exposes our hearts. That is to say that how we respond to Jesus' message of radical love reveals the contents of our hearts, just as it revealed the contents of the hearts of those who were gathered in the synagogue that day. You see we, see, we see this absolutely clearly in the text this morning, that the heart of these Nazarenes were ready to accept favor from God and his Messiah, but were so unwilling to accept love and ministry to those that they considered outside or those that they considered enemies, that they moved quickly to kill Jesus. And like, I'm not, I'm, not I'm not being overly dramatic. I'm not exploding the text. I'm, I'm not doing, like, it's right there. That they, in verse, from verse 22, they were, yay, favor for us in the Messianic age. And by verse 28, we are furious. Let's run him out of here and kill him. Well, it would be hard to be overly dramatic about this text, right? Because the text is already so dramatic. And I love verse 30, and then Jesus like made his way through the crowd, and he, like, he just like escaped, you know? But, but like the crowd was there and ready to kill him. But, but here's what I want to point out. The hearts of this, this group of people didn't get to that point overnight. Like this sudden change from verse 22 to verse 28 isn't happening in an instant, right? That, that there's something going on, that the crowd's ability, let me, let me articulate this clearly, the, the crowd's ability to move so quickly from cheerful approval of their Messiah to violent anger against him only demonstrates a much slower progression in their hearts. That what we see so quickly in the text demonstrates a slower progression that's happening in their hearts. And again, I think if we begin to ask the difficult question and begin to see ourselves maybe as those who do that, then I think we might be able to begin to admit that we might be prone to the same thing. 
This morning, I want to invite us to consider the pr progression of our own hearts that might lead us to endorse hostility and violence. And I do this as one whose own heart has been explored and then indicted. That I, have li I lived many years as a Christian who was willing to accept God's love for me and for those who were mostly like me and was ready to rejoice in God's vengeance against those who, quote, deserved it. And my definition of deserve it was either because of the sin in their life or their actions against me. And I'll say this to, to like have a public counseling session. I say this to encourage you to search your own heart. But over the past few years, my heart has been indicted by the Spirit of God. And my heart has been changing. And I trust me when I say I'm not trying to be cavalier and I'm like, I'm one who like does my very best to avoid conflict in every situation. I'm a peacemaker to the core. So I'm not trying to be cavalier or cute or cliche. But I believe there is a version of Christianity that largely ignores Jesus' call to love our enemies and promote a kingdom of peace. And so what is this progression and how does it begin? Well, I believe it begins with indignation and resentment or what we might call prejudice. It begins with what we might call prejudice. Um, there's this powerful song called I Hate Cats. Don't judge it based on the title. <laughs> Some of you are like, yes and amen. <laughs> and others of you are like, no. <laughs> uh, quick side note, just to lighten the mood a little bit. Um, we have this game, Exploding Kittens. You probably have heard of it. Uh, my daughter loves kittens, and so she's like, it's like seven years old, and she says, based on principle, I'm gonna call this Exploding Goats instead of Exploding Kittens. Because <laughs> I love kittens, you know? And I'm like, wow, okay. Uh, so that's like, so, okay, so there's this song that I like, had nothing to do. Uh, okay, there's this song called I Hate Cats. It's by an artist named, uh, his artist name is Propaganda. Uh, and here's what he does. He uses his hate for cats as a metaphor for prejudice that can often just be built into our heritage. And this song is a stream of consciousness style that tells a story. Uh, so there's like boatloads of lyrics. I mean, tons of lyrics. And so I'm gonna read half of, this, of the song. Uh, I'm not gonna try to rap it like he does. Um, but, but here's half of the song and I think you'll get the idea. And, and I want you to listen to these lyrics with metaphor in mind. It says this. See, I hate cats. Well, hate is a strong word. You know what I'm saying? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not like, like a bigot or nothing. I mean, it's not like I, I mean, I don't see species, you know what I mean? My babysitter, when, when I was a kid, see, she had a cat. And I'm sure there are nice, God-fearing people who have cats in their house, but just not in my home. You see, they stink. They be rubbing their pheromones all over my furniture. But alas, kicking and screaming, I forced a smile on my face when my daughter brings one of these terrible things home. I'm gonna be honest. I thought I raised her better than that. See, we are a dog family and we stick to our own kind. Why couldn't you just love a dog? This is just the voice of a concerned father. See, see, people may think a certain way about her when she walks down the street and why are you walking a cat anyway? 
They're going to think I ain't raised my child well. And it's not like this cat has done anything to me personally. I just know they're kind, you know. I, I mean, I've seen them on the news, and they'd be tearing up their homes of their owners who are providing for them. And why would you tear up your own home? And how come cats can't be grateful? And why are all cats lazy? And they'd be complaining about oppression, and you can see it in their eyes. And don't people who take care of you take care of you well? I mean, haven't we had cats in the White House? Ain't that enough? But then this cat got in my house, and to be honest, it was kind of different. I mean, I actually enjoyed my time with him, but, 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 but the point is, I love my daughter, and I've already made my decision. It's not the cat's fault. I just hate their kind. Well, hate is a strong word. It's just my heritage. I come from a dog family, so it's my heritage, not hate, right? Hate's a strong word. We still talking about cats, right? <laughs> I'm not trying to be overdramatic, and I'm not trying to be a shock jockey. Please hear me today. I'm not trying to do that. What I am trying to do is, for people who follow Jesus, it is so important to search our heart and ask, do we hold any prejudice? Right? I mean, just like at a baseline level, as the people of God who profess and confess faith in the Prince of Peace, do we hold any prejudice in our hearts? Because here's what happens. If we aren't careful, prejudice, prejudice can lead to exclusion or what we could call discrimination. And discrimination creates systems and or laws that exclude or marginalize a people group. And rather than try to explain discrimination, I want to point us to a video uh, that came across my social media feed that I want to share with you. And let me say this. This video was um, very eye-opening for me. And so I, I come to you, please hear me, I, I come to you not as one who is just like, I have this all figured out and you need to be where I'm at. I come to you as one who, as a pastor, sees his role to point out the movement of God in the world and in our lives. And the only way I faithfully know how to do that is to, to help show you what at least, at the very least, what God is stirring in my own heart. And so when I saw this video, it, it, it made so many things clear and so many of my own preconceptions began to, to fall and crumble down. So. Let's watch this video by Dr. Martin Luther King. What is it about the Negro? I mean, every other group that came as an immigrant somehow, not easily, but somehow got around it. Is it just the fact that Negroes are black? White America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, that is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negroes' color a stigma. America freed the slaves in 19, I mean 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. 
and yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate, and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. See, what discrimination does is it normalizes prejudice and then builds systems and structures and laws around that prejudice in order to exclude or disadvantage certain groups. And again, the task for the followers of Jesus, whose message includes love of enemy and ministry to those who are considered outsiders, is once again to humbly discern and then repent of any discrimination in our own hearts. And I would add, maybe not just in our own hearts, but also in our systems and in our structures, to repent and then do what we can to seek justice. Now, my examples so far are, are racially, um, are, are on the topic of, of racial reconciliation, but I want to make sure that, it, it, that it's clear uh, that even in my own life that I have categorized people based on certain criteria and, and then had prejudice and discrimination uh, against those folks. And, and sometimes we do it um, in our professions, right? So in, in this profession, it's like, oh, people who are like that in the office or, or people who do this or that kind of thing. I mean, kind of it's so easy isn't it, to, for our hearts to be so bent toward prejudice, and not just racially or economically or otherwise. I mean, those are kind of big social things, but, but bring it down personally, and you begin to understand that, that sometimes we can overcome the social structures, but we build a whole nother thing in our own hearts against certain people, and we create our own categories, and so I don't want you to just hear me saying, oh, there's Andy going off again on all his social stuff, that this is absolutely... Yes, it is social, and yes, it is personal, that we can do this on a personal level and just to humbly place ourselves before the text and say, are we willing to ask the difficult question, is there any prejudice or discrimination in our hearts? And certainly that can't be controversial. Well, once prejudice and discrimination have been normalized, <laughs> Isn't it sometimes true that we will happily endorse hostility? Once prejudice and discrimination have been normalized, we'll happily endorse hostility. We might even call it God's will and call ourselves the faithful. And can I just say, may it not be so. We need to recognize today 
The Holocaust did not begin with ovens and execution squads. It began by capitalizing on existing prejudices, then moved to discriminatory laws and systems, and then to outright violence. And I, I, wanna, I want to be clear again, my intention this morning is not to be brash or cavalier. My only hope is for the people of God to humble ourselves and be brave enough to discern, is there any prejudice, discrimination, hostility that could lead to violence in our hearts? Because Je Jesus' message of ministry to enemies exposed the hearts of this congregation in Nazareth. And I'm afraid it has exposed my heart as well. So may we learn to follow Christ into the radical love that he embodied. May we not domesticate Christ to our own agenda. May we not commandeer Christ as the mascot of our platform of power, but may we faithfully follow Christ into the radical, heart-changing, world-changing way of love. And I leave us with another song lyric. You know I love music. The brilliance sings a lyric that says, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. May it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today, I humbly submit this message into the hearing of this congregation. praying and asking God that if there is any wayward part in me that it would be exposed and made clear. But God, if there is any truth that it would be solidified in our hearts and that the Spirit of God, the living Spirit of Christ would be moving and active in our midst and in our lives to truly change our hearts. God, may we truly benefit from, the, from your ministry, the ministry of your spirit that sets us free from the oppression of prejudice and discrimination and hostility. For God, these are prisons that we don't just build around other people, but we build around ourselves. And so, Lord, set us free today and help us to be discerning of our own hearts. God, we give you thanks. And we pray, God, that you would meet us at the table of, of the Lord, where we can be transformed by you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.